0: Well, very good morning to all of you, and trust your summer is starting out well, uh, and I know it's a busy time of year for everybody, but uh, it's, uh, it's good that you're here this morning. Uh, even if there was something else you maybe could have been doing, it's good you are here, and I'm glad you're here, and, uh, and uh, we get an opportunity to worship the Lord together. That's the purpose of why we're here. We're here to worship and to pay, hail the power of Jesus' name, who is Lord of all. And so if you do have a Bible with you, you can take it and turn to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46, we're continuing our series through the life of Joseph. We've titled The Purposes of God in the Land of Affliction. And we are coming up to uh, wrapping up the series in just the next uh, several weeks And what a series it has been because of what God's word shows us about who God is, how he works, what he does, and great examples of godliness, uh, examples of what not to do all along. And so this morning we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 46. Now if you remember... Joseph has revealed himself, uh, his identification, who he is, to his brothers. And he tells his brothers to go tell his father that he's alive and to bring his father uh, to Egypt. And we end chapter 45 with Israel or Jacob doing just that. He says, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And that brings us to chapter 46, where it says this. So Israel took his journey. With all that he had, and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons. Remember, this is from chapter 45. The wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods. Remember, Pharaoh actually said, don't worry about your goods, but it's probably not a good idea to leave a bunch of cattle by themselves in the middle of a really bad famine. So they're going to bring the livestock and their, their home goods with them and all their uh, which they had gained in the land of Canaan. And they came into Egypt, Jacob, with all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now we're going to skip down to verse 28. And it's not because the list of people in verses 8 through 27 are unimportant. Uh, We're just going to take the time to read that this morning, though we will touch on it in a little bit. So skip down to verse 28. Jacob had sent Judah, interesting choice, ahead of him, to Joseph, to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and I know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may be able, in order that you may be able to dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd, or maybe the idea here is an outside shepherd uh, or a keeper of livestock, is an abomination to the Egyptians. And then we'll read the first 12 verses of chapter 47. So Joseph went in and he told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men. We don't know who they are or why five, but he took five of his brothers and he presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And then they said a little bit more than Joseph told him to say. In Joseph's brother's fashion, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for, servants, uh, for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you The land of Egypt is before you. Settle settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? How old are you? Basic question there. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. If that's confusing you, what Jacob is saying is I'm 130 years old, they've been few, and they've been distressing and troubling and evil, and I haven't lived as long as my father or my, or my grandfather. And Jacob, verse 10, Uh, blessed Pharaoh and then went out from his presence. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. This is another name for Goshen. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. And that is our passage for the morning. I want to start with a question. And it's a question we must all answer because we're all faced with the same temptation. And I'm going to explain why I'm starting with this question in just a moment. Here's the question. Is God boring? Or maybe more specifically, is God boring to you? And so what we face with here... And I'll tell you what all this has to do with our passage in a moment. But for now, just face that question and answer honestly in your heart before God. Is God boring or is God boring to you? Perhaps you find it boring to even talk about God. Maybe you've settled for what you already know about God and have given up any pursuit to explore the depth of the riches of his holiness, of his grace, of his providence, his kindness, and more. Perhaps everything you already know about God bores you. Boredom with God normally comes from being bored with God's word. We convince ourselves perhaps that we already we know enough about God. Perhaps we even find it hard to believe that there is anything else to learn about God for those who have been in the church long enough And I begin this way is because what we're faced with this morning in the passage that we read as the topic of this morning's passage are, here's the topic, it's two attributes of God. And it's two attributes of God that God gives to Jacob that was meant to carry him forward with what he's facing next. And these two attributes that we'll look at in just a moment are some of the most familiar and most often referred to attributes of God, namely the presence and power of God. And I think most people in here are able to say that yes, God is with me. God is present everywhere. God is all powerful. And then we just settle right there. We've allowed a few phrases we know about God to be a substitute for a cherishing relationship with God. Where we press on not to know more about God, not simply know more facts about God, but we, we don't we stop searching to know Him more. And we become bored with God because we can say the things that Christians say about God. Endless sins await the Christian soul that is bored towards God. Boredom with God itself being a sin. That was true of ancient Israel in Isaiah chapter 43 and Malachi chapter 1. Notice these two verses where God says, You you did not call call upon me, but you have been weary of me. You've been tired out. You're kind of given up. God is no longer God to you. Maybe that would describe you. And then Malachi chapter 1, verse 13. And here uh, Malachi is addressing their worship of God. And God describes them. And he says, here's, here's what you say. Here's what you say, people of Israel. See how tiresome it is? And you view it, that is the worship of God, as trivial. Would that describe your heart this morning? And maybe... You say yes, and you're trying to figure out where to go next. Well, Lord willing, you'll be helped this morning. Perhaps you do feel that way towards God. I have once read somewhere that the most dangerous man in the world is a man who is bored. But perhaps it's better to say that we, man and woman, are in the greatest threat of danger when we are bored towards God. Now, I'm not saying we're always going to experience some high and exuberant emotions 24-7, or that we won't experience those days where it's just kind of blah, or maybe weeks or even months, seasons in our lives where we just kind of feel sort of blah. But we ought to be people, if you're a follower of Jesus, we ought to be people who, as the prophet Hosea says in Hosea chapter 6, we ought to be people who press on to know the Lord. Not just simply know about God or know a few facts about God or be able to say a few Christian phrases about God, but to know God. And you'll find God in God's word. And you'll commune with God as you commune with Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 14 that to know Jesus is to know the Father, that to get to the Father, you go through Jesus. And so in the word with Christ, you can have communion with God. Again, I begin this way because the topic of today's sermon is the highest imaginable topic, and yet, for many, it's perhaps some of the most boring things because we could say those phrases. It's a sermon on a God and a couple of his attributes, and my concern is that for many Christians, we're able to think clearly and speak well on Christian themes, but we have come to believe that if we're able to think clearly about Christian things and speak on Christian things, then that's really the end of the matter. That's the goal of Christian life, isn't it? Just to be able to speak how everybody else speaks? Yet I am nothing if I am one who understands all mysteries and all knowledge, but I have no loving, intimate knowledge or relationship with God. And so this morning, I dare to speak a plain message in order to awaken us out of our stupor, to enliven our hearts to the greatness of our incomparable God, the topic of Genesis chapter 46 is God. He's the topic at hand. He's front and center. And a Christian bored with God settles for knowing a lot of things about God. As if we say, in order to be a faithful and fruitful Christian, all I need to know are some things about God. God. Yeah, in the Bible, we learn about God, but it's so that we will have a growing, deepening, widening, intimate relationship with God. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God himself. And there's a difference. And I want to keep stressing this over and over and over again because I think this is where so many Christians find themselves just at a loss for what to do. They're bored with God, they're bored with the Bible. But there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God himself. It's like this, if someone were to come and ask you, uh, you know, maybe ask about some famous actor, maybe Tom Cruise or something, you know, he's kind of on the front center of things here, uh, and they, they say, hey, do you, know, do you know about this such and such famous actor? You could say yes, and then perhaps you could list a bunch of details about that actor, what movies he or she has played in, uh, how old that person is, or what your favorite film is about this person, but in that instance, you don't really know Tom Cruise, for example, Instead, you know about him or her, whoever it might be. And so when we talk about somebody knowing somebody, we're normally not asking, like, hey, do you know a bunch of facts about that person? Knowing somebody implies on some level a connection, a heart-to-heart relationship, and that's the way it is with God. God. But we, we, have, we have churches, and perhaps even our church, full of Christians who are simply okay knowing a bunch of stuff about God. What movies he's played in. Oh, he played in that Genesis movie. He played in that, that, that mountain story with Moses. He played all oh, in that one story. Oh, he did this one thing one time. And we know tons of things about God, but we don't know him so, we aren't simply called to know about God or know of God. We are called to know God. So, God's words to Jacob in Genesis chapter 46 during his move to Egypt was to give him confidence and peace that he needed to keep on walking with God. So, here, God's attributes meet her- human circumstances. Here, the incomparable God mingle- mingles with ordinary occurrences. God didn't say what he said to Jacob in this first part of Genesis chapter 46 so that Jacob would be able to write a thesis paper on what God said or to lead a Bible study or ace a test. God spoke to Jacob about himself so that Jacob could live in knowing him and have a relationship with him. God told Jacob things about himself so that Jacob would love him, delight in him, trust him, and walk in fellowship with him as he went to Egypt. That's the way it is with us. God's words to us in the Bible call us to use that knowledge about God to help us know God personally, intimately. And so we do what Hosea chapter 6 says. We press on to labor and we labor to know God. And yeah, we got to work at it. It's a labor. And I hope that our time in God's word will spur you on to that end. So we are talking this morning about the incomparable God. And more specifically, perhaps, the incomparable God in the crisis hours of life. Because that's kind of where Jacob was at 130 years old. Anybody knows a move is stressful. And from what I've heard, the older you get, the more stressful a move is. And that's, Jacob's 130 years old and he's about ready to jump ship down to Egypt. And God is revealing himself to Jacob, to give him the confidence and peace he needed to keep walking, to keep walking faithfully with God. And that something was knowledge of himself. So here's the idea this morning. I know that's a longer introduction, but I really want to make sure we're focusing in here. Because our incomparable God gives confidence and peace as we journey home to heaven, we ought to labor to know him. So this morning I want to do two things. I want to give you two attributes, and these attributes are going to be worded differently than how you've heard them. They're actually worded after how Puritan George uh, Swinnick describes God. And I want to give you one application. Two attributes, one application, all so that we can see who God is and what our response should be. So here's the first attribute of God we find in, Genesis, in our passage this morning in Genesis chapter 46. And it's found in the whole thing of what God told Jacob Number one is God speaks with incomparable comfort and authority. God speaks with incomparable comfort and authority. Jacob has just learned that his son Joseph is alive, so he makes no hesitation. He's heading to Egypt to see his long-lost son, the son who was dead but now is alive. And so he packs up all of his belongings, all of his family into the Egyptian limousines that were sent his way. And he begins to make his journey from, most likely I think he's still in Hebron at this point, and he's going to Egypt. But if you notice, before he continues on his road to Egypt, and as he's making his way, and before he gets too far down the road, he stops in Beersheba. Now that might not sound too significant to you, but it really is. Because Beersheba was a place loaded with memories for Jacob. Beersheba is the place where his grandfather Abraham dug a well. And planted a tree, as a memori- uh, made a well in order to make that oath with King Abimelech. It's where his grandfather Abraham planted a tree as a memorial and worshipped God. It's where his father Isaac built an altar to worship the everlasting God. And so no doubt as Jacob is making his way through, the altar, the tree, the well is still there. Beersheba was also the very last stop before leaving the land of Canaan the land of his father's and grandfather's sojourning, the land that God promised to give his family. As a matter of fact, later on in the Bible, when, when, when the writers talk about Israel as, as the geographical nation, Beersheba was used to mark the southernmost point of Israel. So here's what that means. To go beyond Beersheba was to go beyond the land of promise. And this is where Jacob stops to worship his God. Yet there's some hesitation there's some apprehension, there's some fear about moving beyond Beersheba to Egypt. And we see that in God's word. Why else would God say, do not be afraid? There was some fear. And we could perhaps understand why there would be fear. After all, going again, going back to his family history, God denied his father Isaac a trip to Egypt. His grandfather Abraham got into a bunch of trouble when he went to Egypt without consulting God. So God comes to Jacob in a vision of the night, and he says, Jacob, and this is normally the name used when Jacob, when uh, the Jacob is fretful or apprehensive or fearful or suffering, and God speaks to Jacob with incomparable comfort and authority. Beyond what we already mentioned, it might be fearful to go to Egypt because, I mean, they're going to be, these are Semitic people. How are they going to be received by Egyptians? In the eyes of Egyptians, they were foreigners, and foreigners often aren't welcomed into a new country. How could there be any way that they're allowed to settle in the land as a land of their own? Jacob will learn that Egypt is not inaccessible to God. As a matter of fact, it was the very place that God would fulfill his promise to his grandfather Abraham to make his family into a great nation. So I want you to notice with what comfort and authority God speaks. Do not be afraid. Notice what do not be afraid is grounded in, in verse 3. I am God, the God of your Father. Therefore, there's no therefore there, that's the intention, that's the kind of the idea here. Therefore, no need to be afraid. Go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Do not be afraid. I am God. That's comforting. That's comforting. Now notice, Jacob doesn't say in return, when God says, I am God, Jacob doesn't go, no, 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 no. I'm God. And we giggle at that. And we say, well, of course he didn't say that. That'd be ludicrous. But I wonder how many times we live like we're God. God. Maybe we're bored and weary and tired of God because we've elevated ourselves above him. How boring God will be if I am greater than him. And it's not just because I live a boring life. How useless God will be if I can carry on without him. all On my own perhaps we're bored with God because we've come to see ourselves as greater than him. I am not God, and you are not God. When you die, the Trinity will not become a quartet. You're not God. But if I'm walking on a dark path and a troubling path, in trials of many kinds, and I call out, Who's there? What more comforting words could there be than, I am God? God speaks words of comfort by pointing not away from himself, but to himself. He is our incomparable God, and by pointing us to himself, he speaks incomparable words of comfort. And so here, God isn't just identifying his person, he's reassuring Jacob. And us of his presence. Notice next, he says says to Jacob, "I, I myself will go down with you. There's the presence of God. And Jesus says the same thing to us. In case you're wondering, well, yeah, that's really nice for Jacob, but I mean, what about us? Well, Jesus says the same thing to us as we face a famine of our own high inflation, dwindling savings accounts, baby food shortages. Here's what Jesus says. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Well, How could I possibly do that in a world today where gas prices are soaring, interest rates are soaring, food prices are soaring, bank accounts are dwindling? I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Those are Jesus' words. This world doesn't have to capture my love. Money may leave me. Cars may and do leave me. Food may run out. Family may walk out. Friends may desert. Jesus never will. And God speaks words of authority. Incomparable words of comfort and authority. Notice here all the times God says, I will, I will. This is going to happen. God's not like checking in with somebody else. Are we going to be able to make this work? It's authority. He doesn't leave anything open for questions. He says, I will. Egypt won't be able to stand in my way. It won't be able to negate my promises. I will make you into a great nation. I will go with you. And I will bring you up again. Even though, as we know, he, it'll be a coffin that is brought up. But nonetheless, he's saying, you're coming back. God is saying, my plan for this people who I've called by my name to obtain the land that I promised your grandfather will be accomplished, which brings us to our next attribute that we see played out in the rest of chapter 46 and even into chapter 47. Here's number two, second attribute, God does great things with ease and without any help. God does great things with ease and without any help. So now, with the comfort and authority of God established, Jacob begins to move his family to Egypt. And the list of people here, again, we didn't read through all of them, this this list of people reminds us that all who are children of the promise of salvation have their part in God's big purposes. All people do, even if they're outside of God's salvation. Nobody is outside of God's rule and providence. But most of these names... Pretty much kind of just go away. Actually, actually, a lot of these names, really, the only time you see them is when it starts listing. Like later on in the Bible is when it lists who came to Egypt and how God's promises were carried on. But these people are living testimonies of the faithfulness of God's promise. Even though they weren't the ones to, you know, to part the Red Sea or to get visions in the night or anything like that, these people were part of the faithfulness of God's promises. And so here, Jacob selects Judah to lead the family to Goshen. This is interesting, but Judah has obviously emerged as the family leader, and he's begun to prove his trustworthiness. So once they arrive in Goshen, father and son are reunited. Joseph and Jacob, by this point, have been separated for 22 years. And this is a great moment. But the narrative seems to pass by this moment super fast. It says, it gives us what uh, Joseph did. He wept on his father's neck a good while in verse 29. And then we get the words of Jacob, or Israel, in verse 30. And then verse 31, then it says, Joseph said to his brothers and to his fathers, and you don't expect, now here's how things are going to go with Pharaoh. You read of Joseph's tears and Jacob's words, but that's it. And that isn't to make this situation insignificant, but it's to remind the reader that the story at hand is not the reuniting of father and son. The story being told is the redemptive plan of God. It's bigger. The point of this story was not simply, although this is huge and great and blessed, it's not just the uniting of father and son. It's about the redemption plan of God. So Jacob reunites with Joseph and he says, he says, I'm ready to die. I can die now. Yet, God is going to give him 17 more years. And we read that uh, chapter 27, verse 47 verse 28. He lives to 147 years old. So he's 130 now. He's going to live to 147. It's just it's the wonderful grace of God that Jacob got 17 years with Joseph before he was ripped away from him. And now God's going to give him 17 more happy years before he dies. And Joseph, as we see, immediately begins to explain how the next steps are going to work. He takes a very diplomatic and administrative approach. His family is making a permanent move, and they want to live in the uh, uh, land of Goshen as shepherds. And he knows, Joseph knows, that there could be tension between his family and, and uh, the, you know, the outsiders and the native Egyptians. He knows that there could be tension between his family as country folk and the urbanites of Egypt. Joseph also knew that Pharaoh was going to ask about their occupation. Apparently, he knew that Pharaoh was going to wonder, why you're here in my country? Any outsider who's a shepherd, we learn, is an abomination to the Egyptians. Surely, this is going to cause great problems in whatever God's plan was to settle them in Egypt. So he tells his brother, you know, tell Pharaoh the truth, Your keepers of the flock and his brothers in Joseph's brother's fashion, say something different. They say more than what Joseph told them to say. He says they're shepherds. And then he even, they even request to live in Goshen, the northeast part of Egypt. Now, I quickly move to what Pharaoh says. Because it's, it's a summary of what Pharaoh said before in chapter 45, but things are official here. They ask to live in the land of Goshen, but if you notice in chapter 47, how Pharaoh responds, he says, They asked for the land of Goshen. Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 5 and 6 Your father and your brothers have come to you, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Now, this is a statement that perhaps wasn't expected, or at least wasn't very sure that was, it was actually going to happen. The land of Egypt is before you, not just Goshen, but all of Egypt. These outsiders, these foreigners, these abominations are free to choose anywhere in Egypt as their own personal possession. God has done great things for his people through Pharaoh, with ease and without any help at all. And perhaps we think that God is a lot more boring now than he was back then. Maybe we look at this and we say, man, God did really cool things. He doesn't do that anymore. Or God did all these great things as we read these great stories and the great miracles of the gospel. Yeah, God doesn't work anymore. I'm bored of him because he's not doing anything. How can he do things so great and beyond expectation? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where Paul says, when he's talking about us being able to comprehend the love of God and to know the fullness of God and to know God, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Perhaps we're bored with God because we don't really believe this. Perhaps our thinking about God is as far as we think God can go. Perhaps you believe that God fits in your back pocket. You've got him figured out. You know what he can and cannot do. Or what he will and will not do. Or Perhaps we're bored with God because maybe God won't fulfill this verse on our greedy desires. We've settled for what we think we know about God. And what we do know about God is so puny and pathetic. There's been books, I have books in my office that are like 700 pages. And they're just written on God. And there's a reason there's more than one of them. Because all the books put together have not scratched the surface of finding and discovering all the riches of who God is. And we settle, and we're tempted to settle, to just know some things about God man if all we know is just a couple things about God we'll never really want to know God will be boring because we'll get a few things we know about God and that's just it there's nothing else to know God to know God not just simply know about God but to know God is to create in us a desperation to know him more a desperation to press on to know him more He does the hardest works with the greatest ease. One example of this is the ocean. The Puritan George Swinnick says this. He says, yea, the ocean, it's such a frightful monster. It makes such a horrible noise. It opens its mouth, roaring and raging, as it would certainly devour us. It is quelled and quieted with ease by him. Job 38, verses 8 through 11. He continues, when the sea was tempestuous.'" And frighted the disciples that they awake the Lord Jesus. With what ease does he calm the storm? Peace, be still. And immediately there was a calm. God does great things with ease and without any help. God created the world with a word. He spoke and it came to be. The most difficult work of all, creating the world, didn't cause his hands to grow tired or to get dirty. When we consider the heavens the work of God's hands, we don't need to fear because we are in Christ's hands, we are in God's hands, and no one can ever pluck us out. He does the most difficult, the greatest task with ease, without any help. God doesn't need to ask for help, he doesn't need to ask for directions, he doesn't need to run around frantically trying to figure out how this plan's going to work. God will accomplish his purpose. We know that through the Savior, Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. We know that through Jesus, nothing will separate us from the love of God. God does great things. And here's the application. The application is two parts. One application, two parts. Choose this incomparable God as your portion. And secondly, labor to know him more. We find this true in the final words of Jacob as we finish out our passage. Uh, Jacob is presented to Pharaoh and Pharaoh is the questioner and he asks, you remember this story, he asks Jacob how old he is and his response is important. Jacob responds to Pharaoh's question about the days of his life as the days of his sojourning. Did you catch that? He says, what are the days of the years of your life? Verse eight. In verse nine he says, the days of the years of my sojourning. And that's an important word. More on that in a moment. But then Jacob goes beyond that, right? He goes this must be a family thing. Where you just you 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 answer more than the question was asked. And that's what he does here. He gives like he gives an autobiographical summary of his life. It's been difficult, by the way, these 130 years. They've been hard and they've been few. And you're thinking 130 years does not seem like a few years. But you think about Uh, Isaac lived, his father lived 180 years, his grandfather lived 175 years, so it is few in comparison. But then he says it's been hard. My life has been a struggle. His life started as a struggle in the womb, it ends with struggle, and there's been a lot of struggle in between. A lot of times because of his own doing. And he's saying here there's been more joy than sorrow, but he still sees himself as a sojourner. This is so important. Because the title of sojourner carried special significance, especially for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A sojourner is someone who belongs to a nation, but they're away from home for a while. But here's the thing about it. Jacob and his family never had a home. They never really had a nation to call their own or to call their home. So to identify as a sojourner, When he had no true place to call his home means that he wasn't looking back to a home and he wasn't looking around at his home. He was looking forward to his home, to a nation, to a place that God would provide. And this passage shows us that God is going to fulfill Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 where God says, he tells Abraham that his descendants would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs. So that's all we need to know. The move to Egypt was not the end of the story. It was part of the story. Nothing important has changed in the story. They've changed their location, but God has not changed his promise. They've changed their location, but have not changed their identity. And guess what? You're asking, well, is that true for me? Well, let's see what Peter says in the New Testament. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Our problem is our sinful flesh longs for this world. How much more is our sinful flesh gonna long for this world if we're bored with God? Followers of Jesus, our souls have been redeemed and they've been made for another kingdom. And we're sojourners, followers of Christ. Our portion is not in this world. It's the kingdom of God. We should not feed the passions of our sinful flesh, but instead feed our souls with the knowledge of God, knowing God deeper and deeper each day, not just for the sake of knowing facts, but for drawing near to God. So choose, so choose. Choose God as your portion, your heritage, your treasure, your highest love. Draw near to God through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says to these pagans, he says, God God placed men where they would be so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, he's not far from you. He is your faith in Jesus. God is your faith in Jesus away from coming to you and making his home with you. Choose this incomparable God as your portion, your heritage, your lot, your reward, your possession. Our creator has become our redeemer. God became man in order to be, for us, salvation. He died on the cross bearing the punishment, uh, the judgment of God for sin. He nailed the list of our sins, indebtedness to the cross. And so consider what's being offered to you this morning. The incomparable God. And if God is your portion and you are a follower of Jesus, then I encourage you to labor to know him more. All the books ever written about God have only scratched the surface of our incomparable God. Labor to know him more. And yes, that does mean you're going to have to know about him. But again, that's not the end. The end goal here is not just more head knowledge. As the Puritan George Swinnick says, he talks about this love of God, this knowledge of God, being a sanctifying knowledge, a satisfying knowledge, and a saving knowledge. If God is boring, then we will absorb the endless thrills offered to us by the world. Knowing God is how we kill sin, heighten our joy, increase our delight, and find meaning and purpose in this life. So yes, you need to be in the word. Prayerfully reading and absorbing and confessing and repenting. You need to absorb books, articles, blogs, podcasts, and even social media posts that show you God. Don't just find the ones that show you motherhood or fatherhood or parenting or working or being single. Find the ones that show you God. Knowing God is what kills addictions. Knowing God is what changes our ambitions. Knowing God is what satisfies our deepest desires and saves us from hell and judgment. Bored Christian, I invite you to labor to know God. He is boring only to those Christians who have fallen in love with this world, who have said in their heart, worship of God is trivial and tiresome and weary. It's a temptation I face, we all face, and we all must fight. It is labor. It does require pressing on. But there is nothing greater than to know God. He speaks with incomparable comfort and authority. He does great things with ease and without any help. So choose this incomparable God as your portion and labor to know him more. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. As we fight every day not to be bored with the most incomparable being in existence, the one whose existence had no start and will have no end. The one whose existence does not grow weary or out of energy or rusty or outdated or old. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we ask you, God, awaken our bored hearts And we confess to you right now, all of us together, we confess to you that boredom with you is a sin. And we confess to you that we often are far more interested in being thrilled by the fancies of the world rather than knowing you. So turn our eyes upon you, our great Redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.